Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On today's programme, I'm speaking to the filmmaker Nick Broomfield about his new documentary, The Stones and Brian Jones, about that doomjung musician who burned bright, wilted under the strain of fame, competition and temptation and was found dead in his swimming pool in 1969 at the age of just 27. Jones was the founder of the Rolling Stones, the band who, second only to the Beatles, formed the world's mental musical map of the 1960s, perhaps of rock music always. But Jones, a well-spoken middle-class boy from a typically strict 60s family in leafy Cheltenham was a quiet, considered fan of jazz and blues and initially a hard-working, practice-happy gig booker and organiser for his band before the fame, the fans, the fall. So what happened? Broomfield's documentary uses a wealth of often freshly unearthed archive and new interviews to get somewhere near the inside of Brian Jones's head under that famous blonde bob that swished and swayed to the delight of female fans. Perhaps central, though, to this film about a young man who, like Hendrix and Janis Joplin, was such a lightning rod for the tarnished dream of the 1960s is his relationship with his old-fashioned parents. A letter from Jones's father that serves as Broomfield's epilogue is deeply moving. Broomfield uses that great Stone scholar Stanley Booth's quote that Jones was a casualty of war between generations and that echoes to wherever we watch this fascinating new film. In the following clip, Nick Broomfield recounts his chance meeting with Brian Jones on a train. I met Brian on a train as a schoolboy, age 14. I was surprised how open and friendly he was with a soft-spoken middle-class accent. He said he was a train spotter, and this was his favourite line, the Great Western. I remember the shock when hearing he had died tragically just six years later. He seemed at the time to have the world at his feet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's all about to happen. And Nick Broomfield joins us on the programme today. Wonderful to have you here. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much. And as we heard from that clip, Nick, it's a story of the biggest rock and roll band in the world and the original prime mover in that. But also, as we just heard from that clip, you met Brian Jones randomly and briefly on a train (laughs) uh, somewhere perhaps in Buckinghamshire in the early 1960s. What was that like? What was his demeanour like? It was actually the Great Western Railway, and he lived in Cheltenham. Mm -hmm. And I was going back to school. You know, it's a beautiful line, that line that Brunel built. Anyway, he was in a first-class carriage, and in those days there were corridors going down. And I sort of saw him there and walked back and thought, oh, well, you know, I'll ask him for his autograph or something, and sort of tapped on the door. And he was there (laughs) all by himself. And, you know, he signed it and then said, you know, sit down, you know, which I hadn't really expected. And he was, 
you know, incredibly, I mean, I, I guess the Stones were our heroes because they were so kind of anti-authority. I think they'd just had that incident of peeing on a garage wall <laughs> and, you know, all appearing. Cause, so they were kind of like, such, yeah, yeah. Such were, innocent beginnings. Right? Such innocent beginnings. <laughs> you know, we were like, they're our hero. This is what we want to do. You know, we were all a bit sort of confined in school. And I was, you know, just surprised that he was so kind of, I didn't know what to expect, but he was very elegant and softly spoken, very middle-class accent. Mm -hmm. And what he really wanted to talk about was trains. He was a train spotter. It's unimaginable. Isn't it? It's unbelievable. <laughs> I thought he was joking at first. Yeah. And that was his favorite line, the Great Western line. And he was just enthralled with all that kind of thing and told me that he had a big sort of train collection of his own. And later I saw these amazing pictures of the Brian Jones. You know, he had a, a train set. That's so cute. And Him when and Rod were, Stewart. <laughs> yeah, when they were on tour, he and, and Stu, who was yeah. the kind of roadie, uh, would go and buy bits and pieces for the train set or, you know. It it's, was a real thing for him. I guess partly because, you know, his father was an engineer. He was a jet engine designer. And I think they had made a sort of combustion engine together. So, you know, maybe it was partly to do with that relationship. And that was the last time, as your <laughs> film points out, that was the kind of perhaps one of the last times that father and son bonded over something. Yeah. And at the core of this, this is your film is a film about the short life and times and music of Brian Jones, the people that loved him. And, of course, the foundation of the Rolling Stones and his dismissal by by the members that he'd basically recruited, I, yeah. I suppose, as well. But I want to talk about the, the amazing archive in this film. And a lot of it is um, Lewis Jones is Brian's father and very moving. It ends mm. very movingly. And we won't give any spoilers away. But what it feels like uh, unusual stuff. I haven't seen any of this stuff before. Mm. And I love the band and the era. How was that journey, getting all that stuff together? Well, Such personal Personal stuff. Yeah, I mean, I can't take much credit for getting the archive. It was uh, Kyle Gibbon and Simon Orman worked mm -hmm. on it for probably six months before we actually shot anything, just gathering archive. And they would sort of hear about some, you know, like the amazing footage of them with the girls in Sweden, you know, mm -hmm. sort of like, oh, you know, I know the woman who's got that footage and tracking her down and... You know, this is proper old-fashioned shoe leather work in an era yeah. where everything is a click away. This is not that. No, it's, it's really... And then you you fly out somewhere and, you know, it, you find some tapes that are in someone's attic in a <laughs> yeah. box. And, like, the whole new beginning of the film, why well, I say a new beginning, no one's seen it, but is Brian Jones talking about basically the parent-child relationship, a sort of a very articulate summation of that was found, you know, just sort of a few months ago in a shoebox in an attic in Germany. And Brian had given one of his last interviews to this German journalist who had died. Mm -hmm. And then someone had just been rooting through it and found it. And it's incredible interview. So we, we would come across things like that. And then, of course, I changed the whole beginning of the film because I felt in many ways it was a story. It was a sort of story of a kid... And the father in that time in the 60s when there was a real generation gap yeah. of the sort of pre-Second World War parents and the kids who wanted a whole new beginning and didn't want to 
go through any of the stuff that the parents were going through. So that's the kind of centre of the film, really, I think. You you queue up the film with this new beginning, as now I understand it, with that great scholar of the stone, Stanley Booth's quote, that Brian Jones was a casualty of the war between two generations, which is exactly how the film sort of sadly sort of unfolds, I suppose. He He never got his parents sort of respect, did he? For forming this band, they became big, he became a star. Right. And, uh, and that was so important to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were obviously very young and he died at 27. But it was kind of tragic that he, you know, his affirm- affirmation from his parents was kind of the most important thing. And I think Brian, above all, really didn't have his parents' respect. And I think it was, you know, the thing that really finished him off in a way. Yeah, not having that love. But a lot of people did, as, as your film is evidence to. A lot of people, I mean, he fathered three kids by the time he was 20. Mm-hmm. And you speak to a lot of those girlfriends because he, he was sort of slightly rejected by his family of being a, the sort of cuckoo in the nest a bit with yeah. other people's families. I mean, yeah. a little bit more than that, you know, getting the daughters pregnant and moving yeah. in. But you've got some wonderful and very tender there are wonderful and tender interviews um, that you conduct with some of those girlfriends from the well, I early think, 60s. I think he, he made you know the women feel very special mm. and loved. And I think some of them have never experienced that love kind of again. So they're still kind of in love with Brian. I think he caused chaos, obviously, to a lot of the mother's lives. You know, I think in all together, he fathered five kids. And... I think in the 60s, to have a a child without the father, sort of un, unmarried, was pretty awful. And I, I know some of them ended up in convents and the kids got adopted out against their will and they were only reunited years and years later. I mean, mm. it's a kind of real... You forget how Victorian 60s Britain was and very punitive. So I think, you know, Brian was always looking for... A family. He got kicked out of his home at 17. And, you know, he was very charming and lovely. So he would sort of almost seduce the mothers too. Yeah. And they would iron his shirts and cook his meals. And the doubtful, angry fathers with furrowed brows, he chilled them out. He chilled them out. And then he'd get the daughters pregnant and he was sort of gone and looking for the next family. So there's the families, there's the family that rejects him, there's the families that he becomes part of. But I guess there's the musical family that he forms, the Rolling Stones, in 61, 62. And and they become a family of sorts, certainly right at the beginning um, when they're just a group of young men sort of crashed together. Was that the flat in Edith Grove that they were talking about with the ice inside the windows? That and was stuff? the flight in Edith Grove, which yeah. I think was bearable. It well, they didn't of, bother getting out of bed in the morning because it was so cold. Uh, yeah, I think there was so much washing up in the kitchen. It was kind of growing the a whole new flat. bio <laughs> farm. You know, it's just it's disgusting. And they had a sort of meter where they had to put shillings in to get the fire going. It sounded pretty, pretty, pretty primitive. Yeah. And you forget, you know, how tough it was for the Stones when they began. And I think in those early days, they they sometimes did, you know, over 300 gigs a year, all bundled together in this van whizzing up and down the countryside. And it was pretty, very, very tough, I think. I mean, obviously, that was, their music was based on blues. It was much less... I guess pop than the Beatles, I suppose, yeah. at least in the, uh, the early stuff. And I think it was incredibly hard to get those records. Mm. I mean, now you've got your Spotify or whatever. Then you would sort of hear that your mate had got 
somebody had sent him something from New Orleans and everyone go around to that house <laughs> and listen to it. It was like, wow. And Brian had this quite big little collection of it. And he became obsessed with, I think, you know, the more oppressive life was in Cheltenham with his parents, the more he got into blues music. It was kind of like his savior. And he worked out all the keys that these guys were playing in. You know, some of them, like Elmore James and stuff, were playing in weird keys. Mm. And they were playing, you know, slide guitar, which is something no one in Britain really knew to play. And he became brilliant at this. Uh, he became brilliant. <clears throat> so, you know, musically, he was kind of the most advanced when he formed the band. Obviously, the others caught up. But I think, you know, he was very... He was very much the one who taught Keith those sort of interlacing things, and they had a real bond at the beginning. And they, you know, blues was their kind of their way escapism, forward. and yeah. their, and that, I suppose their rebellion. This was black music in a time when that was looked down upon and degraded. Jazz first, then blues, I suppose, as, yeah. as, as, as music that people. These white boys in, in suburban London exactly. loved so Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, Brian's parents, for example, his mother was a classical piano teacher. They all regarded it as a degraded form of music, you know, so yeah. it was very rebellious. Yeah. There's a pivotal moment. The Stones get big. Mick Jagger kind of emerges as the pretty much the natural front man. He's a little bit taller than Brian. Yeah. <laughs> we were looking at the clip and thinking, actually, again, wow, Brian must have been small because Mick's not exactly a giant. Yeah, exactly. Um, when they're doing some of those sort of early duets and, and, and yeah. shouting into the mic yeah. and stuff. Um, but there's obviously some jostling for position within the band, encouraged by their sort of phenomenal manager, who they all kind of base themselves on, it seems, Andrew Lou Goldham. Right. And you've got this archive of Mick and... And Keith especially, some of his interjections are fantastic and very prescient, I think. And there's a very moving moment where he reacts to Brian's death at the end. This is footage from the era or from the 70s, perhaps, I, I should say. But you speak to Bill Wyman afresh for your film, Nick. Mm. Um, and he's he's on excellent form, talking, talking you through some of the chord changes, some of the harmonica lines, some of the intricate blues figures that mm. Brian plays on some of those records that spice up those records and make them, they're the flourishes that we know and make those records so special and have done for the last sort of 50 years. So tell us about how Bill Wyman reacted to you making a film, a fresh film about Brian, yeah. his old buddy or foe, Brian Jones. Well, I think, you know... Uh, uh, Bill was a little sort of removed, I would say, at the beginning. And then, you know, we obviously got to know him better and better. Mm. We actually took the equipment around. We had lots of Zoom conversations and stuff. Then we went around. It was, we were kind of shooting some of it during COVID, so it was a weird time. And then we took some big cameras around and said, look, we're going to be talking to you anywhere. Why don't we just film it? And Bill was like, oh, you know, kind of where's the camera going? And are you going to be filming this shelf and all that stuff? Yeah. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be awful. And even if we get the interview, it's going to be so worried and nervous. We're not. So I just sort of pulled my iPhone out, which I'd never done before, actually, and said, let's just do it on this, you know, now. <laughs> your, yeah. your cameras have got progressively smaller over yeah, the years. Yeah, you know. And he said, what? Just you've got to stay there, right? Like, and then yeah. we just went into that. And, you know, uh, once he gets going, Bill's pretty amazing. And you could just see his incredible passion for the music and love for the music and he just sort of lit up you know and um you, you could all his kind of youth 
returned, I feel. You yeah. Know, you can see it in his eyes when, you know, it was kind of a golden moment. You know, you occasionally in a film strike lucky. Yeah. And that was it. In the early days, who got all the fan mail? Brian. The secretary has told me, well, we get about 100 letters, about 60 of them are for Brian, about 25 are for Mick. There's about 10 for Charlie and Keith, and there's about the same for you, you know, and that's it, you know, but Brian gets all the fan mail. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant musician. He shocked everybody with the quality of his playing. We all dedicated ourselves to the band, and Brian more so than anybody else, because it was his band in the beginning, so it meant the world to him more than it did to the rest of us. There's a bit of the prefacing of the film with that, I suppose, that he was the sort of founding member. You don't say this in the film, but he was sort of sadly the founding member of this 27 club with Kurt Cobain, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse. Yeah. Yeah. And there is that. But you definitely put him put him in his place as a phenomenal musician, as as an interpreter of music that no one had heard before in this country at that period in time. But then it obviously it does get dark. I mean, he died at the age of 26 in his swimming pool in, in the Sussex countryside. Mm. And we get there quite quickly, don't we? I mean, in terms of suddenly he was using mm. drugs and booze and getting hammered and high and was un- unavailable to come to the studio yeah, and record. Like when I met him on the train, he like <clears throat> was in the bloom of youth. You know, he was 20, yeah. incredibly, you know, he looked great. And, you know, I couldn't believe six years later he was he was, a pretty, young, he, he was a pretty young man who kind of Yeah, got and wasted. he was unrecognisable in six years. And we get to the inevitable end, and it's very moving. There's the concert in Hyde Park, the big free concert in Hyde Park, which was sort of dedicated to, to Brian, where Mick reads out that Keats poem, and, and there's a good atmosphere. It feels like... I wonder, I wonder what your view is on whether Brian's death was the sort of spiritual end of the 60s in certain respects. It's sometimes regarded as such. Well, I think it was a shock for everybody because it was the first sort of drugs, drink, Mm. death. And it was sort of the end of the dream that only good would come of this time. I guess it was a, you know, amazing time artistically in all the arts, you know, not just music. And... People were experimenting and kind of doing their own thing. And there was a belief in this magic. Yeah. And I think when he died, it was kind of like a, a wake-up call that things weren't all... So as particularly with something like the Stones, who was so much an emblem of uh, the all these sort of freedoms and the new way. And, you know, I mean, I just remember being really caught up in it myself. And then yeah. when he died, I think everyone was really very shocked and it so the concept was kind of a mixed a lot of mixed feelings i think and there was a sort of feeling that things were changing and maybe the change wasn't altogether going to be great yeah yeah i suppose that's that's the digest on that isn't it yeah yeah and i wanted to ask you about how this fits in you made films about whitney houston biggie and tupac you know and wonderful music documentaries mm. with more and less of yourself in them depending yeah. upon how suitable that might be where yeah. does this sit where does this sit in your you mentioned some of this was made in lockdown i mean you know there is your personal meeting with brian jones which kicks off the film right. really nicely but how personal i wonder a story is this as brian's for you I mean, obviously, I grew up in the 60s, mm. so it was a really formative time. 
And I guess I'm at the, that point in my life where it's quite interesting to look back and at that time. Because, you know, the 60s was like polar opposite to the time now. And there are so many cliches about it, which this film well, there, helps to unpick as yeah, well. Yeah, I think it was useful to go back and just look at the influences. I mean, for me, meeting Brian was like, you know, people remembering where they were when Kennedy was shot. Mm. It was kind of like a seminal moment. And at the same time... I felt very on the fringe of, you know, I had a very cloistered upbringing, really. So it was, it, you know, I wasn't in the centre of things. So it was, it was very interesting to go back and look at that. And I'd never done such an archive-heavy film, which yeah. is a particular discipline, which is a really hard one to learn. It's very fiddly. And I did lots of interviews on this, but I felt in the making of the film, you kind of want to stay in the 60s. It's a very fiddly, fiddly edit. You know, it's like making three films rather than, <laughs> yeah. you know. I mean, we all miss you running around with your boom mic. Yeah, exactly. Let's, well, let's it, get back to basics. Exactly. Well, Biggie and Tupac was this complete <laughs> yeah. chaos, the first <laughs> one, uh, with a bunch of crazy characters. And and, and the yeah. Suge Knight one is fairly, uh, yeah. The Suge Knight one. goes there. That crazy. goes right to yeah. yeah, and they're great fun to do. I mean, I think... Um, you also need the time to, you know, the shoots are normally 14 weeks long, yeah. those ones, those running around crazy ones. Um, so you need to be able to have 14 weeks. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that happens, I've, I've now got a sort of 11-year-old uh, son, Charlie, and it's real difficult for me to take that 14 was... <laughs> weeks off and get bonkers on those films. So yeah. it's like that, you know. So I just so try... There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pram <laughs> in the corner of the editing suite rather than... Rather, yeah, exactly. <laughs> rather so you, than, you're, yeah. you're, and, and I tried to use that as a strength rather than a weakness, but it <laughs> then pushes you into a slightly different way of telling a story. I mean, you're always telling stories, but obviously your circumstances... Yeah change somewhat what you can do you know but i think the next one i do will, will be something more like that out and about M yeah more running around but talking yeah. of archive you sort of mentioned this is a tough way and you also mentioned that you're looking you know there is a there's a pleasure and a temptation in looking back and none more personally perhaps than the film that you made about your father mm. which is just such an amazing piece of work deeply moving and again and there's some parallels with the brian jones film i think that yeah britain was kind of changing it was shedding its skin and these sort of amazing these majestic industrial complexes and factories and these these processes were were being perfected just as they were dying away, I suppose. This is the stuff your father, a documentary photographer, yeah. took these just stunning pictures, stunning pictures of... Are there any parallels for you for this period, not for the subject matter, although perhaps even in that, and Brian James? Well, I think, obviously, I sort of slightly identified with some of the disapproval that Brian <laughs> they met. Were like, no, they were like letters back from boarding school, the they letters were. to his parents. Yeah, I, I'm sure I got a few of those letters, although my, my parents were like, when I got expelled from school, they were like really supportive, actually. They yeah. took my side rather than... I don't think Brian's parents did. They were sort of <laughs> Welsh Baptists, pretty tough. Actually, with my father, you know, we ended up having a really good relationship, even though... You know, he lived to 95 or something. So we, we had sort of plenty of time to come to our senses. Got some good genes there, Nick. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I hope so. So, yeah, we had and, and we were able to sort of come to some accommodation of our mm. big differences, artistic and otherwise. But obviously, if you die at 27, 
Yeah. You know, you haven't gone that extra experience that you need. So, yeah, so there's a lot of the sort of father-son relation referring back to the other film, I think, in the film. And I felt, you know, it was something that an audience could identify with, even though the 60s might seem a really long way away. That 60s is always depicted in technicolour, but it was deeply Victorian, a lot of the mores. So Victorian. Yeah. 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 And I suppose Brian Jones is sort of like one of those people that straddled, as you say, or Sandy, that Sandy Booth, Booth quote at the top, straddles those, uncomfortably straddles those two generations and, 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 and didn't quite and, and know in which yeah, camp he stood. Yeah, he, he just wasn't strong enough, I think, to, you know, I think he probably didn't like himself very much, you know, given the lack of support or the, the sort of censorship he got from his parents. And sort of, I think people who often don't like themselves take it out with pretty awful behavior on other people, which, you know, they, some of the women talked about in the film. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, you kind of get a sense of a, a wider reference to, you know, Brian and that period, I think. Yeah, well, he was certainly, he feels like a pebble and feels like the ripples are still being felt from the yeah. meaning of, of his life and death, his work, what the Stones went on to become. And you've made a film about the most difficult band to make a film about, in a the, way, the most secretive band. I mean, they, it, are, they really are. And so I actually made the film without sort of going along to Mick and saying, Mick, can I make, you know, because <laughs> I'm, felt... I'm glad I've, we've got your, <laughs> we've got your ask, your I wheedling felt... voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, I thought, you know, I, I end up with that other pile of films that have all been some people have given years of their yeah. lives to and never see the light of day. Yeah. Also, I think unauthorized films are much more likely to be closer to the truth. You know, because mm. you're not having to accommodate somebody's you know, thoughts or wishes. Or, and I think once people become very famous, they can become really tricky in terms of the image they want to present. And it's very much, actually, it's incredible, really. You know, we're very lucky in this country with the BBC and Channel 4, things like that, because British broadcasters are so much more risk-taking than the streamers. You know, the first question the streamers would ask you is, have you got the band's permission? You yeah. Know, that, and if you haven't, they'd be very reluctant to put the money in. Whereas I think here it's more like, ah, oh, that's really interesting. We'll sort of fly under the radar a bit. We get a, <laughs> we get the real inside story. This, this won't be a proof, but it's going to be a better film. There is such a thing as public interest, not just making good film, right? It's, well, it's, yeah, it's there. exactly. And I think, you know, they are prepared to take the risk. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, we feel that. We are sometimes told, I don't know whether we feel it day to day, switching on our, device, our various devices, but that we're living in a golden age of documentary. I wonder how you particularly feel about that and whether, you, whether you've well, heard I, that and whether you feel yeah, that there's any I think it's very circumscribed. It. Right. I think, you know, there were a lot more interesting documentaries being made when, you know, for example, you know, Jeremy Isaacs, who was kind of the first founder of yeah. Channel 4. I mean, he was like... At the other extreme, you know, you're sort of meet Jeremy on Charlotte Street, which is where the offices were, and said, oh, what are you up to? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, I don't know, I'm thinking maybe I'll do commission. Go, go inside and see such, a, you know. Yeah. So he was just like taking crazy risks on things. 
And some of the films were absolute disasters. And then some of them were almost brilliant, you know. And I think things have become very corporate. And so, and the streamers, you know, they're very, very corporate and, you know, dominated very much by lawyers. So it's all, all the I's have got to be dotted and the T's crossed before their start. And I think people are very worried about losing their jobs in America more probably than here. And although you, you think there's more money around, it's, it's very prescribed, I think. I mean, the other thing that's so weird now is you go into these, they have all these documentary pitch meetings, and, and they, they expect you to be able to tell them the end of the film. You know, it, the whole thing about documentaries, you shouldn't know what the end is. If you, if you know what the end is before you start, you've got a real big problem. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, how I've been making films. So it's very conservative. And, you know, these poor documentary, you know, who are all struggling to get a budget, come up with very formulaic films, you know, very formulaic because they're so discouraged from taking risks, you know. And I've always thought... Documentary films are the wild west of filmmaking. Tasty. You know, it is one man and his dying horse. You know, or, <laughs> the mirage or, on the or, horizon, which know, is the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, coming back with something and not knowing what they were going to come back with. You know, Nick Brimfield sifting for gold in the river of <laughs> the river of life. Nick, thank you for coming in to talk Pleasure. to us about the Stones and Brian Jones, and indeed decades of. Brilliant, brilliant filmmaking. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Nick Broomfield. And you can watch Arena, The Stones and Brian Jones on BBC iPlayer now. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. Oh, right.